I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacey Elliott. And I'm Stephen Graves. And this is GM from Decrypt. All right, GM Stacy, and welcome back. And today we'll have on the Dan Held, he of the 600,000 Twitter followers. Yeah, GM Dan, this should be really good. This guy, it's funny, I know him IRL, I should say. We met way back in SF at the start of the crypto era. I think I met him in like 2013 or 2014. And of course, now he's, you know, oft retweeted. And I suspect a lot of people in crypto just know him as a Twitter influencer. But he really has legit priors. He co-founded a price app in the early days and sold it to the company now called Blockchain.com. It was so early, that was when Blockchain.com was called Blockchain.info. And they were mostly mm-hmm. known for their blockchain explorer and their wallet. And then he progressed from there. But now he's become a big kind of Bitcoin, I would say Bitcoin maxi, but we'll push him on that um, influencer. Yeah, I'm really curious to hear what he has to say about, you know, what we've seen kind of turn into culture wars among the Bitcoiners. Yeah. Um, we've seen a lot of that lately. I also want to talk to him about, you know, maybe surprisingly the Ethereum merge a bit. You know, there's yeah. this big proof of stake, proof of work thing going on. And I think he's got some interesting thoughts there, both in terms of security and energy, because there's lots of different angles on this. Hundred percent. And the culture thing is so interesting. It's all going to come to a head. Even certain people that won't say they will, I know are watching the merge very closely. And let's see what happens. When that happens, it affects everyone in the industry, not just um, you know, ETH holders. So we can ask about that. And you're totally right about the culture wars. Um, you know, you and I going to various crypto conferences, we've seen the different vibes and you know, I think things are changing a little. I'm hearing from a lot of people who might be thought of as Bitcoin maxis that they're interested in uh, so-called Web3. They're interested in NFTs or things that can be built and, and dApps, even if they think, you know, Bitcoin is still the ultimate and, and the primo product in crypto. Yeah, it feels a little bit like maxi isn't the catch-all that it used to be for everyone. And, you know, I'm curious to see what Dan Held calls himself these days. Yeah, 100%. Well, great. Let's bring him on. All right, Dan Held, GM, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Dan. Welcome, welcome. So much to talk about. And we want to get into kind of your story and and have some fun. But let's start with current news. We kind of got to start with the market. Who knows where we'll be in one week when this episode comes out. But as we talk, kind of summer doldrums, tough, tough times for the crypto market. A lot of moving around among certain price milestones, Bitcoin trying to cling to 20K. What do you make of the current market cycle? And I guess a fun way to ask it might be, what do you tell people who say to you, gosh, it's hard to be optimistic and positive right now? Well, Dan, you've been around as long as I have. So we've seen some more stays than where we are now. I think a lot of people are seeing the price go down and they look at that and they wonder, why am I holding on to Bitcoin? Well, 
Bitcoin, I think, has gone through a lot over the last few years. It went from a very retail-driven, very niche asset to becoming a world-recognized, you know, gold alternative by some of the top investment banks, hedge funds, macro traders, you name it. Basically, Bitcoin has kind of elevated itself to like a real-world asset that's recognized by everyone. Now, the price is reflective of how many tr people truly believe that Bitcoin represents, you know, gold 2.0 or whatnot. And as we're seeing now, of course, with Bitcoin's typical market cycles, you've got the speculative big bull run. Then you have the sell-off where people who just came for the money left. But the people who are sticking around are the ones who really understand what Bitcoin is valuable for. They understand Bitcoin's value prop. And you could extrapolate that to the rest of crypto as well. A lot of people trading NFTs just came just to do a, a flip quick, like a quick flip. Some, you know, the ones who actually care about art and ownership and everything like that, those are the ones who are sticking around. So I think, you know, with any speculative cycle, whether it be with stocks, bonds, Bitcoin or other crypto assets, we're seeing this play out in real time here through this bear market. Now, I think when we look at historical bear markets, Bitcoin hasn't been in a macro bear market. So in 2022, we've seen tech equities, we've seen other more risk on assets start to sell off. And so we're seeing Bitcoin and the rest of crypto really tied to that risk on category. And so as risk on assets have sold off, crypto has sold off even harder. And so I think that's what we're seeing right now. I don't necessarily see any catalyst or any any trend, anything that will break the current trend of kind of being in the doldrums in the in the bear market territory. I think what we're seeing right now on a emotion on an emotional basis, because prices are reflective of emotion. When prices are higher, people are greedy, and when prices are down, people are fearful. And so I do think we are feeling quite a bit of fear. And I think when Bitcoin hit 16,000, but I think it was like a month and a half ago when all of the um, you know, deleveraging panic occurred or the uh, contagion panic occurred, I think that was peak fear. Uh, I've been in the space almost 10 years now, and that felt pretty damn fearful for everybody. Um, and <laughs> there are times I don't check the price as often as I used to, but there were, you know, during that I was watching USDT, so US Tether, uh, against the dollar and seeing that go below parity definitely reflected, I think, kind of mass fear. So TLDR, you know, this is a typical cycle. I think we've seen our, our max fear moment, but you never know. There could be something else. We could see the energy crisis in Europe really, really spiral out of control. That could reduce a lot of European demand. We could see that impact global markets in a really devastating way. So I think we've seen peak fear, but if there is huge macro contagion that occurs, we might go even lower. And and just to follow up on that, I mean, when we talk about the digital gold case, you know, I love questioning, you know, that everyone got on board with that. I mean, you know, maybe all the way dating back to when that began as the value proposition for Bitcoin, you know, maybe we went wrong there because people say, well, if it's digital gold, then it's a great store of value and it should go up over time. And whenever there's a little crash like this, you know, we'd love to talk about narratives. I know you see all the headlines, people say, oh, I guess it's not digital gold. You know, I've heard during this time people say, well, what about the other use cases? I mean, and Bitcoin, of course, was supposed to be a lot more than just buy it and hold on to it. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, when we look at Bitcoin, we look at it as if it was a product or service. A protocol is the same thing. A protocol solves a problem for customers, customers being the users of the Bitcoin network. And so the Bitcoin network does three things really elo eloquently. So one, it allows you to store wealth in a way that is very, very hard to seize. 
if you have your own self-custody solution, it's very hard for someone to come seize that unless they use physical force. They find your hardware wallet. I mean, hell, you can even store it in your head if you'd like, which makes it extremely seizureship resistant. So it's got that as a characteristic. It is also immutable, which means you can send it to anyone else in the world without being censored. That's a very, very big value prop. And then third, it has a monetary policy that has a fixed, uh, a fixed supply, which seems really simple on the exterior, but on the interior, that's an incredibly huge breakthrough in monetary economics. So when we look at why is Bitcoin valuable, it depends on how you're using it. But a majority of folks do use it to store value that's hard to seize. And they do that because they believe in the monetary policy being the best monetary policy in you know contrast to any other crypto asset or fiat currency monetary policy. So that's that gold 2.0 narrative is Bitcoin's monetary policy aspect. And the, uh, you know, it, it's very, very hard to seize. So I think that's still intact. I don't really see how the core protocol has changed at all to, to minimize that. You know, that is an effect whether Bitcoin's worth $10, $1,000, $10,000, or $100,000 of Bitcoin. That doesn't really change too much. People are certainly, you know, people have certainly used it for its immutability purposes. Uh, Silk Road being a prime example. And any other use case that usually is in either violation of a local government's restriction on transactions or could just be for cross-border remittances that are normally much more heavily controlled. So, you know, I think Bitcoin is still valuable for that use case. But if we look at the majority of users of both Bitcoin and other crypto assets, a majority come in for speculation and then a majority stick around because they're parking wealth there longer term. So that's the gold 2.0 thesis. Some people would say, hey, the price went down. Doesn't that invalidate that? Well, let's look at gold. Gold is the quintessential store of value of basically all of civilized human history. Well, gold, if we look back all the way to like 2011, 2012, gold barely moved up at all. And so inflation adjusted gold actually lost quite a bit of money. Does that inherently make gold a bad store value asset? No. Gold still maintains its properties, whereas monetary policy can't be controlled by government. It's extremely hard to seize because it's a bearer asset. You hold it yourself, you own it. And, you know, it's relatively immutable, which means that one piece of gold equals one piece of gold. And it's hard to hard to censor that. So. Gold still maintains its characteristics as a sound money or a, a gold, even if gold hasn't appreciated in price to match inflation. So, Dan, I want to ask you about global Bitcoin and, and global adoption for it. So you wrote pretty recently in one of your newsletters about this. And for folks who, who do not subscribe, I was hoping you could kind of sum up that argument there. I mean, we've seen the Bitcoin that El Salvador has bought. It's down pretty bad. There's been a lot of debate about whether or not this this grand experiment that they launched last September is is working, if they should stick with it. So, you know, for the folks who are not religiously reading your newsletter, um, like some of us, kind of get us up to speed. And, you know, how how do you defend adoption like that now? Yeah, great question. So the newsletter, by the way, is called The Held Report, for those who are curious. And, you know, I really find like I'm not a <laughs> I'm a very old school Bitcoiner. So I don't exactly like the idea of governments co-opting Bitcoin and then using that as a way to uh, acquire new Bitcoiners. However, due to Bitcoin's permissionless nature, any government is free to do so. And I think it is inevitable that eventually governments might hold Bitcoin as a reserve asset similar to gold, some that sort of function. But in El Salvador, a Central African Republic, and a few other countries, they are experimenting with the government sort of co-opting Bitcoin as a, an alternative you know, state recognized money. And, you know, I don't think this is a bad thing. I just think that it's a little bit problematic sometimes because I believe in free market activities where if individuals want to participate and the government says, great, we're not going to ban it. 
I prefer more of that activity than the government kind of strongly encouraging it. Just because there's a lot of like weird incentives that can arise out of that. There could be wallets that are created by the government that may or may not be as private or, you know, give users as much ownership over their Bitcoin as they should have. For example, self-custody versus custodial. So there, there are some things that are problematic there. Again, Bitcoin's protocol is, <laughs> is permissionless, so anyone can utilize it and anyone can use it any way they'd like. When we look at adoption rates globally, you know, I'm I'm not exactly sitting here and I don't have like survey data per country where that I'm going to every every day or so. But from what I've seen, a lot of people still are using Bitcoin for that store of value use case. There are people using it for remittances as well. But for example, I don't think there's a lot of like micropayments or traditional payments use cases for the simple reason of, you know, as you mentioned earlier, El Salvador bought Bitcoin and the price dropped quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin inherently as a store, good store of value asset has no centralized mechanism of controlling the, mon- uh, the monetary policy or, or money supply. And because of that, the, the price floats freely, which means it fluctuates. And so for a day-to-day transactional currency, Bitcoin and most other crypto assets are, are very, very poor at that. And that's where we've seen adoption of like USDT or USDC. And even though I'm a huge fan of Bitcoin, I do recognize that stablecoins can help out folks in these countries. Now, of course, as a caveat, these stablecoins I'm referencing are completely centralized. Uh, mm-hmm. They can be seized or censored at any moment. However, uh, to you know help the U.S. dollar kind of propagate its dominance, I do believe the U.S. government will likely allow USDT and USDC to be adopted globally in these different countries because it, it, it propagates the strength of the U.S. dollar. I view it as sort of a stopgap measure where people are introduced to crypto via USDT, USDC, and then eventually realize, wait a second, okay, so a centralized company controls this. Maybe I should stash away some of my long-term savings in Bitcoin. So I'm not too big of a Bitcoin purist. I'm more of a Bitcoin realist where mm-hmm. Bitcoin solves a problem in the market, but it doesn't solve every problem. And certainly some folks may or may not want to have exposure to Bitcoin's volatility, so they choose to use a more centralized instrument. Of course, they're using something centralized, which mm-hmm. means that it doesn't have a lot of those characteristics from a blockchain that we'd want, right? But that's somewhat unavoidable as we've seen the algorithmic stable coins not be able to keep their peg as we saw with Tether and Luna. So I think, you know, when it comes to adoption, I think Bitcoin represents that kind of like store value gold 2.0, a very volatile one. And then you've got that alongside, I'd say like USDT, USDC, the metrics behind there are huge in terms of that being adopted globally. So I'd say they work in tandem. They don't cannibalize each other. It's just more of like one is more purpose-oriented versus one problem that it's solving versus another one. Okay. And then since we're in the neighborhood, I want to ask, since we're talking governments and crypto, how would you feel about a central bank-backed stablecoin? You know, we talked about algo stablecoins. We talked about Tether and USDC. And there is a lot of talk that we might eventually see a centrally backed stablecoin from some government, even in the U.S. potentially. So how would you feel about that? Well, funny you ask that. I've actually got an, a, a research report coming out with the Texas, Texas Blockchain Council and the Bitcoin Policy Institute, where uh, I'm going to say that they, they actually did more of the heavy lifting, but I had a... Uh, a paper I was writing on CBDCs, and uh, they really took it and ran with it, and it's coming out soon. So I'm really excited for that to come out. Give us a preview. <laughs> <laughs> this is the preview for it, the the super exclusive release coming out. Now it's a, it's a really great piece that I think comprehensively dismantles the idea of why CBDCs would be valuable. So CBDCs, for those who don't know what that means, it means central bank digital currency. Mm-hmm. Now today, when you go use dollars. 
you don't have a bank account with the Federal Reserve. You have a bank account with Bank of America, uh, maybe your brokerage, and these are all called like commercial banks. So the U.S. government allows these banks, gives them certain uh, reserve ratios, and and they go in and make sure that they're all compliant. But essentially when it comes to you know, how banking activity works that's done through the commercial or like free markets, central bank digital currencies would mean that you bank directly with the Federal Reserve which means like you have a bank account with the Fed. Mm -hmm. This undermines the entire commercial banking industry because now it totally changes the dynamics of how these banks are run. It means that the central bank starts to exert complete control over every transaction in the economy, which would mean that, for example, if Dan Roberts tweeted a really bad tweet, you know, maybe he said something very inappropriate, well, if the politicians in charge, uh, you know, uh, have some influence over the CBDC, they could censor every single transaction from Dan. Mm -hmm. Or Dan could be penalized where they take 10% of Dan's bank account just because they have complete control over every asset and every transaction in that network. So CBDCs aren't this leap forward in innovation. They're a leap forward in control. So right now, stable coins are issued by centralized companies that are working with banks to create you know, a token on-chain that represents a real dollar in a bank account. That's fine. It's a free market activity. People are willingly able to transact in that and not have to, you know, th th this is all on a blockchain, so it's all not exactly private, but users can choose to opt in with that or not. And USDC and USDT won't censor anyone unless they are legally required to. Uh, with, a, you know, CBDC, this means that every single transaction is surveilled and controlled by a centralized entity, and there's not even a due process here where they might have to get a warrant. Or they might have to get something mm -hmm. to go seize it. They literally control the server, so they could they could go in and tweak who owns what. So CBDCs, I think, represent a very 1984-esque authoritarian-style money, which is very different than stablecoins, which is a free market free market activity, and of course, very very different from Bitcoin, which isn't centrally controlled, which can't be seized very easily, and is uh, isn't able to be censored. Yeah, and Dan, I mean, when you talk up Bitcoin's you know censorship resistance, which has always been a key appeal, got to bring up the recent news of the sanctions against Tornado Cash, which you know our our devoted readers know that we've been all over this story, but it's a crypto mixer, and you know the government is basically saying to the centralized companies, you know, you should not allow users whose wallets have interacted with this service, and of course the fear is that eventually you know, through these kind of roundabout ways, the government can try to continue to crack down. I mean, people have always said, well, the best thing is, you know, they can't ban Bitcoin. And that's true. They can't. You know, that's the whole point is it's decentralized and it's tens of thousands of different nodes. But they can put pressure on companies, projects and platforms by, you know, sending subpoenas or issuing sanctions or saying that they're noncompliant if they don't ban certain users. So how concerned were you by this uh, latest step? This is very concerning for the whole space. I think this is a moment when Bitcoiners, Ethereum folks, and everyone can unite and say that, hey, this is a, this is a bad omen for all of, all of crypto. I think that this represents the, what we've been anticipating for some time, and it represents the you know, U.S. government exerting censorship into different blockchains because they view some transactions to be illegal or uh, problematic. Tornado Cash, uh, in this example, was a mixer that allowed people to not like uh, mix their coins with other others, so they could they could basically uh, obfuscate where the origin of the coins came from. 
So these aren't new or innovative. Uh, coin joins exist on Bitcoin. Those have existed for some time. And you've also got centralized mixers, and those centralized mixers have been taken down. With Tornado Cash, you had, you know, the front end essentially start to censor transactions. So people could still interact with the protocol, but because the protocol didn't insert, and to the best of my knowledge, censorship, but the client did, um, like the web client. So, you know, this is problematic because if people start censoring, then it sort of defeats the entire purpose of using blockchains. And so when we look at staking, this is a, even more problematic because when you look at how staker incentives work, they are slashed. So you post capital, you stake capital, and you are slashed as a staker if you do not sign that block. So essentially, if there's a, an OFAC-related transaction, the centralized entities said, hey, we might not be able to sign these blocks because we would then be culpable. They would then get slashed. Uh, getting slashed means they might have their funds reduced in some manner. The upgrade to Ethereum's proof of stake, I think that when the tornado cash happened, I think this threw serious doubts into the proof of stake game theory being fully fleshed out. So, you know, proof of stake is interesting and novel. However, this is an incredibly delicate game theory that should have been thought out a little bit earlier. And I think that Vitalik has been, I'd say, widely brushing aside concerns over slashing, where he says, we'll just slash the bad guys. Well, it sounds like the existing fiat system, and Nick Carter penned a really good opinion piece in Coindesk a few days ago that highlights this exactly. It's very, very hard to identify who the bad guys are, because that's inherently political. With proof of work, it's not immune from some of these game theoretic attack vectors, so I'm not going not gonna to just gloss over some of these issues with Bitcoin. However, Bitcoin doesn't have a slashing mechanism. Miners should simply miss out on the additional revenue from including that transaction, that transaction fee. Bitcoin relies on the game theory that someone somewhere will include that transaction in a block if the, uh, if the fee is high enough. And so that gives you, I think, a much more granular level of, re of censorship resistance that Ethereum with proof of stake won't be able to offer, and it doesn't negatively penalize other you know, proof-of-work miners. So they're very nuanced in terms of how proof-of-work versus proof-of-stake or Ethereum's version of proof-of-stake, how these will work game theoretically, but Tornado Cash brought this to the surface, highlighting an uh, issue with when it comes to slashing and, and how these giant uh, you know, staking pools, these uh, giant staking pools would have this, this risk attached. Even more problematic was the concentration of stakers. The concentration of stakers were predominantly in centralized entities. And the problem is they couldn't de-stake and switch very easily. With proof of work, a lot of, sure, a lot of miners are with mining pools because mining pools smooth out your, your revenue and that's better for business. However, if a mining pool started to censor transactions, they can immediately switch to another mining pool. So that is a little bit better game theory, I think, mm. to thwart this sort of attack. Whereas with Ethereum, I forget, I think it's almost months that it would take you to like unstake your assets with uh, a staking pool. So that's the, to the best of my knowledge. I'm not an expert expert, but that's to the best of my knowledge what's going on right now. So I want to talk about another aspect of, you know, proof of work, proof of stake. I mean, you, I had this for later, but you brought it up. So perfect segue. <laughs> so by the time this episode comes out, we'll be maybe a week or two away from the Ethereum merge. And I know that you said the amount of energy that the Bitcoin network uses, it, like that's a feature. That's not a bug. That's not a problem, if I'm paraphrasing your argument correctly. So like give us a high level tour of this whole energy debate, because it's been around, I think, as long as Bitcoin has been here, that it just a lot of people think it uses way too much energy. And they say that that's a negative. You say this is a positive. This helps actually secure it. Yeah. So, you know, let's start with the basic premise of 
physics. Everything in this world requires energy. It's not a bad or good thing. That just is. Me talking right now is using energy. And so when we look at how energy is consumed in an economy, energy is usually tied to our well-being. I've got air conditioning on right now, and I'm in Texas, and it's 105 degrees outside. My human body would very much prefer that it's nice and cool, 70 degrees in here versus 105. I also have a bathroom, and I have clothes that I wear that are all required energy to be created and to use. Energy is inherently tied to the human condition. Now, when we consume energy, there are a lot of people that say, hey, that is a better or worse use case of energy. And I, and I find that a little bit problematic. First and foremost, I'm not sitting here, and, and for those who watch the Kardashians, I'm not going to sit here on a moral you know, stool and say, hey, that's a, that's a really terrible use of energy. You should be watching the Nova channel and watching uh, polar bear nature shows. You know, it's completely arbitrary and silly to, to granularly go and look at someone's energy consumption and say that's a good or bad source of energy or that's a good or bad use of energy. And so inherently, I think the underlying argument that Bitcoin is a bad or good use of energy is fundamentally flawed because no one is criticizing, for example, you've got people who fly on, on private planes versus uh, commercial airliners. Well, even commercial airliners, are they contribute a lot to uh, global warming and everything else. So like, <laughs> are we bad people for flying a plane to go see our grandma? I think that gets really problematic if you start to analyze every single piece, you know, usage of energy and say, this is bad or good. Okay, so let's take this back to Bitcoin. So Bitcoin uses energy to mint Bitcoin fairly. So what that means is people have to expend the work, the energy to mint a Bitcoin, which means that no one could just magically snap their fingers and create more. So this enables Bitcoin to both be fair and to ensure that Bitcoin's issuance happens in a programmatic manner without anyone manipulating the money supply. There's other mechanisms too that weigh in here, but I'm just kind of glossing over some of the details. When Bitcoin uses energy, it both produces new Bitcoin and also protects the ledger. So it, it sort of builds this wall of energy around Bitcoin's ledger. And I think that's inherently a good thing. I think Bitcoin solves three really big problems. It's, it's a money that's hard to seize, immutable, and has a great monetary policy. That is really valuable for people across the world. And so I think Bitcoin's energy consumption is totally worthwhile. And people pay to buy a Bitcoin from miners or pay to transact in the network, which all pay them for using energy. And so if people want to use that for that use case, I think that's a phenomenal use case to use energy for. When we think about how do we protect something in the, in the digital world, well, we don't, it, it's really hard to think through how to do that because in the digital world, it's easy to copy things. It's easy to just copy paste or manipulate. And so how does Bitcoin protect its core value props, how does Bitcoin protect its, its money uh, itself as money? Well, it uses this energy. And so if we look to the real world, no one would bat an eye if you bought a bolt lock for your door or you bought a safe to put your valuables in or, you know, you have a military to protect you. Or, And when we look at the military, we look at all of the planes, tanks, nuclear powered aircraft carriers, etc., all of these things <laughs> combined require enormous amounts of energy. And, you know, if we zoom back further in history, let's, let's talk about walls, big castle walls that required a lot of energy to build. Are those bad or good? And I'd say most of the people that went behind those walls during a time of crisis found it to be very valuable. So, you know, criticizing Bitcoin's energy consumption is both very subjective and also, I think, really misguided because Bitcoin's using this energy to protect its ledger, which is doing something good. And we would never criticize that in the real world.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I do want to play devil's advocate because I don't think people who are critical of cryptocurrencies are necessarily going to want to like hang in there for that whole argument. And Mm. You know, they're kind of damning all of them together. They're not drawing distinctions. So do you think perhaps post-merge, Ethereum's now on proof of stake, it is, as has so often been said, very likely going to be using less energy at that point. Do you think that takes some of the heat off Bitcoin or do you think that's going to step it up from people who really care about this environmental angle? It's definitely going to step up the heat. And here's where the nuance is very problematic because it's hard to proclaim this nuance amongst newbies or folks who are really worried about worried about the environment. Mm-hmm. Ethereum is trading off energy consumption, but it is trading off other factors as well. Game theoretic factors that make it weaker and stronger in certain areas. And this is this is problematic because if there's a catastrophic failure in the Ethereum protocol due to these trade-offs, well yeah, sure you cut your energy consumption down by 99%, but then the protocol failed. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that it will I'm saying that it opens up Ethereum to some uh, technical attack vectors that the Bitcoin community does not want to take on, and that's why they're sticking with proof of work. Of course, this very nuanced perspective is hard to <laughs> hard to proclaim. Um, yeah. You know, when someone is primarily just worried about the environment, they're like, "I, Dan, I don't want to hear all this technical stuff." Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I do think it will add pressure to Bitcoin's energy consumption because they'll point to Ethereum mm-hmm. and say, "Hey, this blockchain that I have." You know, I'm talking from a lay person's perspective here. They're like, hey, this blockchain isn't using very much energy at all, and you're using a lot, and that's it. You know, they're not going to understand proof of stake versus proof of work or, or anything else. So I do think that will add to some pressure on Bitcoin. I do think we're seeing kind of a global anti, anti woke energy pushback, though. So it does come at a very, very good time for Bitcoin when Europe is about to freeze due to its egregiously dumb ESG policies. You know, with with like Germany and other countries shutting down very, very energy efficient power plants due to optics and uh, wanting to look good with their population. And so this winter, I think we're going to see some of those ESG without, you know, I believe that like, yes, global warming is caused by people and that global warming exists. I think that, you know, politically charged ESG requirements may or may not actually help to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, and we've seen that kind of globally where people are shutting down power plants that are very efficient. And so when we look at, you know, Bitcoin in this context, we could sh- see a shift from the super woke, all energy consumption is bad to, holy shit, we just literally froze Europe. <laughs> we do need energy and we'd like ideally like energy to be a much more renewable, clean mix, but that's going to take some time. Mm-hmm. And we've got to be realistic with it versus being so dogmatic. Also, You've got some pretty egregious political ESG failures where I think the term is like largely losing a lot of its a lot of its former um, strength. You know, for example, like ExxonMobil won, I believe that they won like an ESG award. And then finally, you know, when you look at ESG, you know, it stands for environmental, was it uh, social, social governance. governance? Yep. Yeah. Well, great proof of stake, you know, reduced energy consumption, but caused governance problems. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, if we use their own terminology, ESG, 
they only really care about E and then everything else is just governance or they just really care about the environmental and then they ignore governance. And that's, I think governance is hugely problematic as a libertarian. That's why I believe in, in Bitcoin. And, and, you know, that's where I think DeFi and other stuff is really interesting because it changes how governance works. And I think that, you know, taking humans out of loop, the loop when it comes to governance is the right way forward. So yeah, that's my complete thoughts on that. But I do agree, you know, in summary, I do agree. It'll probably add more pressure Mm -hmm. for Bitcoin's, uh, you know, on Bitcoin's energy consumption. That was a, a better argument than I've heard when people just do, well, what about Christmas tree lights or what about dryers, which yeah. fair, but you know, that's, that's been the norm for a while. It's just to point to some other thing we're all used to using that also uses a lot of energy. But Dan, let's zoom out a little bit. We haven't kind of reviewed your personal crypto past and it's always fun. Why don't you tell everyone how you first got into the space? As you said, you really were early. I think we met in like 2013. I mean, this was early, early days. Yeah. I mean, I've heard people recently say, oh, I'm, you know, I was early to crypto. They say, I've been in it since 2019. It's like, okay. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people who follow you, I mean, God, you've got these 600,000 Twitter followers. I bet many of them don't even know that the way you got in is you, you know, created a, a price app and sold it to one of the biggest uh, companies at the time. I think they just might think you're, you know, a, a big talker and influencer. Yeah, it's kind of funny too. A lot of a lot of people on Twitter, when they find my long form blog content or my newsletter, they're like, "Oh, I didn't even know you write." Just because I'm, I'm more well known for kind of my short, quippy takes on Bitcoin on on social media. Yeah, I mean, you know, I started in the space as a builder. I, I actually wasn't really well known at all. I mean, back in the 13 era, there was only like a hundred people, <laughs> so we all kind of knew each other. You know, for example, at Blockchain.com after they after they bought Zero Block, so I. Zero Block was the most popular mobile app in crypto back in 2013. And we got bought by blockchain.com and I came on board there as the first product manager. The first people at blockchain.com were like, this was before Peter Smith or anyone else joined. It was like CZ from Binance. Wow. <laughs> he was CTO. We had Andreas Antonopoulos as chief security officer. And, uh, you know, for me at the time, I was blown away because these, these folks, you know, CZ wasn't really well known at the time, but Andreas, of course, was like the biggest influencer. So I, I got to work with these people in early 2014, which was, uh, and almost no one remembers that we all worked together there. <laughs> it's so long ago. And also I think like, it's just very interesting to see how everyone turned out. But yeah, you know, it, it's funny when we look back that, that far, I often tell people, if you've been through one crypto cycle, you're an OG. If you've been through a bull and a bear, you've got your stripes. I've been through three. So I don't know what that makes me. It makes me like an, like an old, old person in the space, I guess. But uh yeah, it, it's funny because some of this repeats itself and some of this sort of just rhymes. You know, the fear and greed cycles are, are the same over and over again. You've got a lot of money that's come in, a lot of capital. Uh, narratives change. What's hot changes. Um, what fails is different. You know, back in the 13 to 15 era, you had a lot of like uh, Mt. Gox, Cripsy, you know, that sort of, you know, centralized exchange failure and or fraud. You know, and then now we're seeing that more with like rug pulls of DeFi. <laughs> so it, it sort of doesn't change. Crypto is sort of this wild west world where, you know, it, it attracts really talented people and also like really, really scammy types. So I've seen a lot of people come and go. I've seen a lot of companies come and go. But, you know, the one thing that really resonates with me as, as like a former product guy, I've been doing marketing for over seven years now. But when I first started, out as a product guy is just focusing on what problem is is this solving. And I think that when you look at a lot of these, it's it's very tricky because you see the price go up and you go, wait a second, isn't the price value or isn't the price indicative of traction or product market fit or protocol market fit? Is the protocol solving a problem? And most of the time it's not. Most of the time the protocol 
isn't really solving a problem. The price is just this signal to the market that a lot of people are looking at it, potentially solving a problem. So I do, you know, really like how in the 2020 through 2022 era, we had a bit more tangibility around solving problems. Look, NFTs are super interesting. Uh, you know, if people want to buy those and, and use those as a way to represent community or identity or art, I think that's very valuable. And that's very indicative of the market showing us that it's valuable. A lot of people want to buy those. Certainly a lot bought it just to flip it, but a lot of them bought it because they actually believe in that. You also have DeFi as well, like lending and borrowing against your crypto asset as collateral. I think that that was proven as a valuable use case that has some sticking power. Do we need another Dogecoin? I don't think so. I don't think we need to run through Litecoin, Dogecoin, Primecoin, and all of those layer one cryptocurrencies, ones that are trying to compete with Bitcoin. I, I think Bitcoin stands alone in its in its moneyness. I think that it has the only truly credible monetary policy and its community has enforced, you know, keeping that monetary policy in a certain way and enforced its fight against corporations and, and corporate creep. So I think that, you know, when we look at like DeFi, and I think that's like an incredibly valuable and interesting use case that has exploded and shown what I would perceive as real product market fit or protocol market fit. And then, you know, longer term, I actually think some of that will come back to Bitcoin a little bit. Bitcoin can't do a lot of the cool stuff, you know, that Ethereum and Solana can do. Bitcoin has traded off cool stuff for decentralization. And so, you know, Bitcoin has traded off a lot of those parameters. But, you know, these other protocol these other protocols are like, hey, how about we trade off some of that decentral decentralization to do cool things? And I find that interesting. I find that really cool. And I do think that some of those use cases might come back to Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin's never going to be composable. But composability, for example, is a blessing and a curse. When you have financial Legos built on top of financial Legos, that leads to incredibly high amounts of complexity. Uh, for example, if USDC ever was frozen, then all the money Legos built on a USDC smart contract would, would fracture. And so Bitcoin's DeFi, I think, is going to be more single-purpose DeFi, like a Lightning, like discrete log contracts, like, like Stacks. You know, Stacks is a sidechain, which then enables more like EVM-style uh, smart contracts. So Bitcoin can't do a lot of cool stuff. It pushes that to the layers above it. I do think we'll see a couple of those use cases come back to those layers. I think like NFTs are probably the closest one. NFTs and maybe some forms of, of ways to earn yield. I think that those are some of the use cases that will come back soonest. Well, that's such a good segue too, because you, know, you mentioned NFTs. You scooped me a little, but I wanted to ask you about kind of the, the culture between there's the Bitcoin people and then there's Ethereum people now in some ways. I'm already starting to hear, not just from you, but others recently, a, a little bit of a softening of that. You know, like I was at NFT NYC talking to some people who might have in the past been perceived as Bitcoin maximalists. And they were saying, oh, you know, look, we can't lie and, and we can't say Bitcoin has that art culture aspect because it, it doesn't currently. And, you know, talking about your, you know, the way you started off in the industry and the fact that you're this big figure on crypto Twitter now, I, I wanted to ask you your take on where the two cultures have gone these days. I mean, I, I, I know that you also go to an event like Bitcoin Miami each year. And to me, there, there's a certain vibe at Bitcoin Miami, and then there's a certain very different vibe at NFT things or say at ETH Denver. And I just wonder your, your assessment. Yeah, well, as like an old OG, I mean, to me, Bitcoin represented a very radical freestyle of money. And, you know, I lived in San Francisco at the time and Bitcoin is very synonymous with you know, <laughs> Bitcoin synonymous with Burning Man culture and like pretty liberal, pretty open-minded things. And that, that's how I still feel about it. I'm, I'm very libertarian. 
you know, if some, <laughs> I want full legalization of drugs, people should be able to do whatever they want with their body in any sort of way, whether that be female reproductive rights, whether that be drugs, whether that be gender, it doesn't matter to me. I'm a, I'm a very big libertarian and I want to support and, and vehemently defend all of those rights. So for me, I think that there's a fraction of Bitcoiners who are like, with the, with that sort of radical thinking, you're more typically permissive. Permissiveness would look more around like, hey, if you want to build NFTs on top of Bitcoin, cool. I can't stop you from doing it. Bitcoin's permissionless. And that's great. Bitcoin's actually started out on Bitcoin. Back in 2014 era, you had Counterparty. So, you know, I'm more of that permissive group. I don't know if, what do you want to call that group? Maybe the moderates or rationalists. I, I don't know. I, I think it's still being actively defined. I would refer to it back as its original term, being a Bitcoiner. I think being a Bitcoiner is what that represents as being open-minded. I think a lot of the Bitcoiner criticism with other altcoins or NFTs and stuff usually stem from marketing or it being mislabeled or misrepresented. And I don't necessarily disagree with some of that, but I do think that can lead into what some of the other faction is in Bitcoin, which is the more conservative, very conservative, very, uh, I would say, anti any sort of making money or any innovation. They're like, hey, Bitcoin's perfect, and they sort of preach a God family Bitcoin vibe. Bitcoin has nothing to do with God or family. It's simply money. Uh, that's always what it has been. So, you know, Bitcoin has no marketing team, so people are free to market Bitcoin however they see fit. But over a long period of time, I don't think that message is going to resonate with a very large audience. I think some audience will certainly like that. And by the way, I totally respect people's want to have a family, and that's awesome. I, I think family units are incredibly important. And I'm atheist, but if you're religious, then you're free to believe in whatever you want to believe in. I just don't think that has anything to do with Bitcoin. So I see one side being more increasingly conservative, where they're requiring purity tests that are somewhat impossible to achieve of their, you know, anti-shit coinery or whatnot. And I think that that's just unrealistic for, you know, if they want to use their own biblical terms, yeah, ye who has no sin can cast the first stone. Uh, if you hold fiat or stable coins, you're t you have shit coins. So, you know, everyone has those. Does that make you a bad person? I don't think so. So I think that there's kind of two sides of Bitcoin now that both I think have, you know, they want Bitcoin to succeed. One is more rejecting any sort of identity outside of a very conservative one. And then the other one, I would say, is just more permissive. Let's build new things on top of Bitcoin. And we shouldn't demonize people for, uh, you know, owning other assets. I, I use an analogy where some of these more hardcore conservative types are akin to a, a preacher being outside of a casino. And so you walk up to the casino with your buddies and they're like, hey, man, don't go in there. Like, you're going to lose all your money. <laughs> And the group of buddies are like, well, yeah, that's why we're going to a casino. <laughs> I mean, they people aren't complete idiots here. They understand that when they buy and sell crypto that they're likely doing something pretty speculative. Now, will they regret losing money just like they would regret losing money in a casino? Of course, everyone does. But does it inherently make that activity bad or like no one should be allowed into a casino? I, I kind of doubt that. And so instead of being that preacher outside, you know, outside kind of, you know, hammering the Bible going, hey, you should be buying the S&P 500 index, which, by the way, they're not wrong. You know, Bitcoin statistically, if you look, if you want to look at like your best return per unit of risk, like will you pick the right altcoin that will moon? Maybe. Or NFT. But Dan's been around a long time. You've seen everything since 2013. I've seen 10,000 cryptocurrencies come and go, crypto assets come and go. It's very unlikely. So the preacher is not wrong. They just come across a little, you know, a little annoying. And so I think the better approach isn't to fire and brimstone you're a sinner, it's more of, hey, son, or hey, hey, you know, good good job. You went in there, you made some money. 
All right, now don't go back in there and gamble the rest of it. Put that into Bitcoin. You want to hold Bitcoin long term. So you pat them on the back, say congratulations, or they come out and they're like, man, I lost everything. And you're like, you know, I'm not going to say I told you so because that just is kind of rubbing it in your face. It's not really the right way to do it. It's more of like, hey, well, you know, you should probably figure out what, what went wrong with some of those. So I'd recommend reading about Bitcoin first. Get to really understand that. If you really understand Bitcoin and then you understand the trade-offs between it and other crypto assets, great. If you want to go speculating that, cool. But maybe this is a time for you to reflect on what went wrong and to learn more about Bitcoin. So I guess it's a fire and brimstone versus a more accepting, uh, you know, we're all sinners sort of vibe. So I wanted a lot of this reminded me of the... I'll call it a dust up that happened with Nick Carter recently. And I know, you know, you chimed in on that whole debate because that very much was the community trying to hold him to a purity test and saying, ah, you're not a Bitcoiner, you know, sheep in wolf's clothing, whatever you want to call it. Are you seeing the fire and brimstone faction start to lose steam? Or do you think that kind of like gave them more gas and they're more enthused than ever? Great question. First of all, Nick Carter is a good friend. I consider him to be a good person, first and foremost. He has advocated for Bitcoin in ways that is incalculable. I'm not sure if you all have seen Nick Carter's, uh, you know, like CNBC appearances and whatnot, but he is an eloquent fighter for Bitcoin, far more eloquent than I am. So he has done great work, especially with proof of work and, and defending that. And he has had his recent piece on proof of stake versus proof of work and governance to where I would say Nick is probably one of the most nuanced debaters where he calls out Bitcoiners for some of their flaws and also calls out Ethereum and other communities for some of their design trade-offs. So I very much respect Nick. I think he's a pretty neutral character in the space. But Bitcoiners thought that he was one of their own, which he, I would say, largely had been identified as Bitcoiner. Whether or not he agreed with being labeled that way, that's what he was labeled as. Bitcoiners found his investment in a certain asset to be, you know, not Bitcoin enough. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and I think what went... What went wrong here, and by the way, I publicly defended him because I think he's a great, great advocate for Bitcoin. I think what went wrong is that, you know, in the kind of haste of the moment, he got more defensive. And the I respect Nick a lot because he's so usually patient, mild-mannered, and reasonable. And I think in that moment when you're getting attacked by thousands of people or tens of thousands of people, you can get a little bit reactionary. And I think the reactionary, you know, first steps he took kind of inflamed them even more which drew more criticism. And so I, you know, I think that could have, it could have panned out far differently. And so I, I kind of lament that it had, that it went down that way because I think that Nick is still a great proponent for Bitcoin and still really loves it and, and actively fights for it. And I think that he was unfairly canceled. Now, I think Nick could have been a little bit more polished and a little smoother with his, his criticism of the Bitcoin, you know, kind of more hardcore ethos. But yeah, I think that that moment was actually a more, I wouldn't say it gave any one faction like a like a leg up or a, a, a you know a big shift. It was more of it clearly started to clearly identify the factions a little mm. bit more discreetly. Here's like Nick and a few other Matt Car and then Matt Carallo as of a few weeks ago as well. I think that that further kind of cemented this new camp. And then I've done some of my own moves where I'm not sure how exactly how I'm perceived other than just my general thumb in the wind of feeling how or finger in the wind of feeling mm. how. Twitter feels about me, but you know, with my recent moves with Trust Machines, which is building Bitcoin applications on top of Lightning, DLCs, stacks, etc., you know, that was me also signaling that I'm more on the permissive side. So yeah, I think Nick Carter kind of more crystallized the difference between the two factions. What's interesting is they have the same goal to make sure that Bitcoin succeeds and that 
we all love Bitcoin. So I don't think it's necessarily like the block size wars. I think it's a very different style community, not breakup, but the like reference. division. Yeah, because like the block size wars, that was more of a civil war. And I don't think this is that at all. There's nothing like contentious that the, you know, Bitcoin rationalists or moderates want to introduce to layer one. They, they're not trying to like insert new code. And if they did, they'd go through the same process that all their code has been done before, peer reviewed and everything else. Whereas the block size wars folks tried to use political and, and business influence to, you know, railroad or whatever the term is to, to really jam in that new, you know, new block size. And they also fundamentally misunderstood what Bitcoin was about. I think, uh, you know, those factions thought it was like a cheap way to send payments. And as we've seen, that use case has been largely debunked. Mm -hmm. um, so they fundamentally didn't understand Bitcoin, whereas this division is more nuanced around culture, identity, and less around code changes. And, and, and I think everyone understands why Bitcoin's valuable. So no one's advocating for a layer one code change to, to add a new use case. They're more of like, hey, I want to build on top of Bitcoin. You know, we respect that layer one is like very, very unchangeable or very minor changes. So I would say it's more of a cultural identity and, and, and business philosophy rather than like a, a truly, you know, fundamental disconnect over why Bitcoin's valuable. That's great. Dan, this has been so interesting and uh, we appreciate the time. There's just so much to talk about here. I think we want to wrap, but let's end this way. You know, we've talked about some things that I'm sure you're used to being asked about all the time. You know, it's like defending the energy use, defending, you know, what do we say to doubters when the price goes way down? Well, it's not just about the price right now. Here are the use cases. Here are the reasons we care. What does success as someone who's so passionate about Bitcoin and advocates for it look like to you in the next five to 10 years? I mean, what do we want to see happen? I know that investors want to see the price go up and, you know, we'd like to see it dispel a lot of the, the skeptics and the doubters. But when you look at five to 10 years from now for the industry and for Bitcoin itself, what do you want to see come true? Yeah, that's a really good question. Overall, I want Bitcoin to succeed in terms of just pe more people buying it, holding it, believing in it. All money is a belief system. Uh, as the uh, German minister at the ECB told me in a, in a conference I was at in 2019 where he whispered to me and he said, my religion's bigger than yours, which he, I think, very succinctly summarized what the difference is between the euro, dollar, and Bitcoin. Bitcoin adoption will only occur if more people understand it and believe in it and choose to park wealth in it. And over time, I think, which will take a very long time, over time that, that makes Bitcoin a credible alternative to fiat currency. So TLDR, more people believing in it, which means more people owning it. So ownership, unique owners of Bitcoin would be like my primary KPI. I want more and more people, even if it's a dollar or $10, at least they're starting to pay attention. And so, yeah, a lot of people could learn about it and never park money in it. I do think that KPI around them eventually buying some quantity reflects their their own recognition that hey the existing system is flawed i've chosen to vote by buying some amount of bitcoin and now i'm starting to pay attention i'm looking at the price i'm looking at what's changing the price i'm starting to read andreas antonopoulos um, i'm starting to read nick carter that sort of thing so i think that kpi is most indicative of a uh, action performed by someone to identify themselves as being part of this new movement because Bitcoin itself is a revolution. You're rejecting your own government's money and you're saying, I don't trust you or believe in you anymore. And you're buying a new one. So that's my primary KPI. I think that that's done via some things that are out of our control. Price speculation. The bull runs are what most users come in. Because people are drawn to the rising price and then they go, wait, maybe I should buy some. And then they buy some and some stick around for the sound money. 
But then, you know, the, the way that they stick around for the sound money is through education. So for me and uh, companies I work with, like Trust Machines, education is going to be a huge critical component. How do you understand, you know, what is Bitcoin? What, how does proof of work work? What is DeFi? And that's going to be kind of a new area for me is digging in and explaining different DeFi projects and also understanding some of the nuanced trade-offs of those projects. And then, of course, you know, like, for example, other companies I work with like Ledger. Ledger is the number one hardware wallet in the world. Their mission is incredibly powerful. Self-custody is the only, only way you truly have ownership in crypto, and they provide that. So I think it's, you know, for me, it's just really lining, you know, you know leaning into the core values that I care about, self-custody and education, and building new applications on top of Bitcoin. And so, you know, for me, I think that those will help drive adoption outside of our uncontrollable market cycles. This hopefully will keep more folks to stick around rather than leaving in the next bull run. So five years from now, you know, I'd be really excited if we had like half a billion unique Bitcoin adopters. So half a billion, I think, would be pretty incredible. I mean, <laughs> we've come a really long ways. And I think the last number they, they say globally is like 100 billion. I've seen that mentioned a few times. So let's say if that number is true, that's like five times the number of unique hodlers, you know, in five years. That would be success to me. Wow. 5X. <laughs> well, Dan, thank you so much for coming and joining us. I mean, there's just so many things we could dive into here, and we really appreciate you, uh, you know, chatting with us. I appreciate you having me, Stacy and Dan. Pleasure as always. Really, thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun, and I'll see. I'll probably see you all around at the conferences. This has been GM from Decrypt. I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacy Elliott. And I'm Stephen Graves. GM is a Decrypt podcast produced by Red Rock Music. Our executive producer is Red Yoakum, our associate producer is Emma Martins, and our audio engineer is Enrique Inahosa. For more from Decrypt, go to decrypt.co or download our mobile app. Subscribe and review us wherever you listen, and we'll meet you back here next time for more crypto conversation. GM. GM.